40 days. 40 days fasting in the wilderness. 40 days fasting in some remote place surrounded by the harsh realities of loneliness, of scant resources. 40 days with no food. At the end of this period, what does the gospel writer Matthew have to tell us, has to tell us about the state of Jesus? Jesus, whom had just gone through this ordeal. Well, that Jesus was hungry. Of course he was hungry, right? That Jesus was hungry. Of course he was. 40 days of fasting in the desert. You don't really need to be Sherlock or Poirot to figure that one out, right? But Matthew wants to tell us that Jesus was hungry. And if we think about how the gospel accounts sort of work with the different gospel writers choosing and putting things in a certain order because they want to tell us something, this means that Matthew wants to emphasize this. There's a whole lot of possible details he could tell about from this story, but he tells us this one. Jesus was hungry. And Matthew wants us to remember that Jesus was hungry because his hunger gives context to the temptations that Matthew goes on to describe. And Luke as well. It gives humanity to Jesus' experience of the desert, of the wilderness, of life, of embodiment. We talked about this story, right? The story of Jesus in in the desert and some translations of the wilderness and other translations. Uh, And we talked about it a month ago in the beginning of March when we were more, more or less at the beginning of our Lent series, which we have called Echoes which we have been going through since the end of February and and up to now, right? We talked about about that story of Jesus fasting for 40 days in the desert, which is, of course, a very symbolic number. And we talked about it with the question, is is anyone there? Is anyone there in the wilderness? And how Jesus' experience speaks into that, right? Is anyone there in the wilderness of the world? In the wilderness of our own experiences? Right? There in these wild, empty spaces of loneliness, of scant resources. And they can look very different. Sometimes the resources are not material. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they're social. But these experiences of loneliness, of of not having what you need at the reach of your hands or being denied it. And when we call out in these kind of places, whether they are physical places or they are spiritual, emotional, social places, when we call out, do we hear nothing but our own voices echoing back like they do in big empty spaces? Was there something, someone, making themselves present in the echoes. And Jesus, we've been saying and insisting, 
is making himself present. Even though we don't always quite grasp what that might look like. But we recognize through faith a movement, a movement from God, which is a movement into our wilderness, into the reality of our lives, into the neighborhood of our human suffering and our human experience, into the place where we live and inhabit and are. And in faith, we insist that God is present. Yet when they tell the story, both St. Matthew and St. Luke tell us that Jesus was hungry. Lack of food does that, right? It leaves us hungry. And it is in the context of hunger that we speak of Jesus' temptations in the scripture. And that we speak of more. Because the wilderness, it does something to us, doesn't it? Sometimes when we speak of wilderness in in a Christian context, we can uh, sort of try to make it look good. And think about, you know, the spiritual contemplation, everything that we might get from it. But wilderness is a tough place and it does something to us, doesn't it? And throughout this series, throughout the month of March, we explored and talked about different experiences of wilderness that we find in the scriptures, but they are not only in the scriptures, we see them, right? We talked about the wilderness of otherness, of this making and marking of the other as someone other than me. We talked about this Canaanite woman whom the disciples wanted to quiet down and wanted to get rid of, never mind the suffering of her child, but wanted to get rid of because she was, after all, not one of them. She was a people that they had learned to despise and to hate. And as she comes to the disciples and to Jesus with the suffering of her child wanting help, it is a dry place where no one wants to hear. We talked about the wilderness of the status quo, right? We talked about this man born blind who's healing on the Sabbath, a holy religious marked day where you shouldn't work, you shouldn't do anything, and his healing on the Sabbath leads to further exclusion and to persecution rather than joy because his healing disrupts the religious and the social status quo. We talked about the wilderness of social stigma, of difficult relationships, and of fear, right? Of Mary. Mary, the young girl who gets pregnant out of wedlock and gives birth to a wandering preacher who the religious authorities are bent on killing. There are more wildernesses, I don't know how to say the plural of that, but that we could talk about. And my question today is, what do we bring from the wilderness? Or what does the wilderness do to us? Are we aware of it? Are we honest about it? Jesus was hungry. The Canaanite woman, she showed faith and she showed craftiness in her response to Jesus. 
But was she angry first? I know I would be. Perhaps she was embittered right, by the heartless exclusion that profiled her because of her ethnicity, despite her suffering and the suffering of her child. What does living like, like that do to you? When years of being kept on the margins of the religious and communal life of his people due to his blindness, and when years of that gave way to a new exclusion because of the inconvenience and offense of his healing, what might have brewed in the heart of, that, of the soul of that blind man whom Jesus healed? We don't know, we can't imagine, right? Anger towards the establishment would be well-merited, to put it lightly. Mary was afraid. That much we can deduce from the biblical narrative. But perhaps she also at times felt isolated, frustrated that this miraculous conception did not turn around her fortunes but made life all the more difficult. That she said yes to God, and time and time again, it felt like she got suffering in return. I asked the question because today, at least liturgically, we emerge from the wilderness, from the desert, from the period of Lent, which is a period in the, in the liturgical calendar that reflects these 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. A period of fasting for many, a period of observing, of remembering. And we emerge from it into a feast that celebrates Christ among us. This Sunday is known as Palm Sunday. And on this day, we remember the stories that the gospel writers tell us of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, into the center of religious and political and community life, riding into Jerusalem and being greeted by a crowd that waves palm branches and chants songs hailing Jesus as king. But what do we bring with us to Palm Sunday? Is it only palm branches or is there more to it? I want to read the story with you as as St. John tells us in his account of the gospel. Uh, and it's in chapter 12 of the gospel according to St. John. If I manage to get my Bible open here. John 12, from verses 12 to 19. And I read from the NIV version. And it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed a sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. There's a lot that we could say of this story, right? And as the gospel writers describe the scene, our focus often quickly is drawn to Jesus. Of course. He is, after all, the one at whom the palm branches are being waved, uh, the one riding into the city, the one to whom the shouts of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord are being directed. So this scene, it's, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Is it? I want to pause for a moment and ask a different kind of question. I invite us to pause and look at the crowd, at the people, and ask, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Why are they waving palm branches at Jesus? Why are they chanting about the coming king? Why are they redirecting chants that were used, right, in the festivities of the Passover? Why are they directing them at this one person, at Jesus? Of all the gospel writers, John is perhaps the one that more clearly invites us to make that question. I think that John, in any case, has the least glamorous of the descriptions of these events. And the way John tells us, he lets us know, right? That the crowd is there because of the miracles. The most recent one, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, had made an impact and the word is spreading in such a way that the religious authorities are not happy and the people want to see more. And he lets us know, the people who heard about this, they are the ones going out to meet this miracle maker. The disciples, John lets us know, have no clue. They don't understand what's going on. They only understand it later. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees are envious. Everybody has their own agenda. And none of them, it seems, are actually fully paying attention to Jesus. Or maybe that's not really fair. They're looking at him, they're speaking about him, they're maybe even using words and deeds that he has said and done. But more than listening to him, they are projecting their agendas at Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, this is a little detail, sometimes we just go over. In the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't get ready with the donkey beforehand. 
If you read this story in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, Jesus sort of preps the scene and gets this donkey ready and gets all of that ready before he goes into Jerusalem. And there's a language to this of riding into a city, right? But in the, in the account of John, it stops midway, and then Jesus gets this donkey. And it does it all, Jesus does it almost as if in reaction to what the crowds are doing and are saying. And the reason I say that is that Jesus knew something about this king-making game that the crowd was into. And John also knows something about this. Already in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, after Jesus had miraculously fed a crowd in the wilderness, a hungry crowd in the wilderness with just a few bread and a few fish, and Jesus feeds them by the thousands. And right after that, John, the Gospel writer, had warned us and said, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, the multiplication of the bread, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why are they waving palms and chanting at Jesus? Why are the Pharisees angry? Why are the disciples confused? The question meets the other question that I have made earlier, right? What do the different experiences of wilderness do to us? Because it's easy for us to stand here and criticize the crowd now and say, oh, you selfish crowd. Why are you trying to force Jesus to be your kind of king? But then we put ourselves in their skin, Impoverished people under the yoke of a violent empire. Struggling to make it every day. Struggling to have enough to eat. Struggling to have some kind of freedom under an empire. Struggling to keep whatever freedom they had. A lot of the moves from the Pharisees we misunderstand because we don't know that background, that the Jews had a privileged position within the Roman Empire that allowed them to have some sort of religious freedom. And the religious leaders were freaking out about the idea that they might lose that because these followers of Jesus are calling him Lord and King. You can't do that. You call Caesar Lord and King in the Roman Empire. People who come out from the desert come hungry. People who live under oppression of an unjust empire want a different kind of king. People who have been fed when they had nothing want bread again. What do we bring with us? The disciples had followed Jesus for several years, seen what he was capable of, seen his teaching. Of course they don't want him to die. 
They believed that he was the Messiah. They wanted to see him recognized as such by the means that they knew for it. Put him on the throne. Put him in the center of religious power. So, as much as we might be provoked by it, should we really be surprised that people want to force Jesus into their expectations of kingship? Isn't that what we do? But Jesus, in the Gospel of John, grabs this donkey midway as if in reaction to the, crowd, to the crowd calling him king of Israel. And as he does, he harks to Zechariah, who has a prophecy of the king riding in a donkey. And by doing that, he, he harks not just to Zechariah, but to the whole tradition of the prophets. The prophets who again and again and again were those who challenged the power abuses of Israel and of the people around. The prophets who again and again challenged the misunderstandings of their privileges and entitlements. The prophets who again and again called the nation and whomever would listen to subvert the human power games and join in on God's will for grace and mercy. There is a a kind of an anti-imperial agenda here in the Gospel of John. Jesus will not be forced into a kingship where he is the new empire, where he is the new despot, no matter how benevolent they imagine him to be. He's not going to play that game. He's not going to play the game of violence. He's not going to play the game of political power on human terms. He's not going to play the game of miracle maker for an exclusive crowd. And even as the crowd hails him as king and the Pharisees fear him becoming a king, he walks consciously towards a situation in which he will be crucified as a criminal outside the city walls. And that, in the gospel according to St. John, is the place of his glorification, of his enthronement. And even there we're tempted. And we do, would do well to consider that the purpose of John's portrayal of the cross as the place of Jesus' glorification and enthronement is not so that we will then elevate the cross to our royal standards and gild it in gold and adorn it with diamonds, but rather that we will humble kings and authorities and powers to the cross of the suffering servant. That's the movement. That's the movement. We need to pay attention to Jesus and how he relates to power rather than shaping Jesus into our notions and our structures of power. Which means also that we need to be aware of what the wilderness does to us. Because this is not only about established powers. 
This is also about the empires that we would establish if given the chance. This is also about what we would make of Jesus if it was up to us. As American Bishop Craig Satterley puts it, we need to be clear that as we wave the palms and sing Hosanna, we are joining the crowd and celebrating our expectations. The least we can do is to know them and to name them. And maybe that makes a difference. Because we do hail him as king, don't we? We do yearn for a different kind of kingship, don't we? We do call him Lord for a reason. There's an old tradition in some churches that the palms that are used on Palm Sunday, we wave them, right? We sing Hosanna. They're kept. And next year, they're burned and their ashes are used on Ash Wednesday to mark a cross on the forehead. And there's different reasons for that tradition. But as I thought about it today, I thought that this is a powerful image. For this, this honesty in the process and this exercise to humble our expectations to the cross of Christ. That even as we wave Christ as king, we are aware that as we do that, we inevitably bring with us everything that we want Christ to be. And some of that, some of that needs to be carried with us into our next wilderness. Some of that needs to go. That we can wave him as king and say, but even as I do this, I know I need to break some of this down for the sake of Christ and for the sake of what that does in the world. And then we burn it as we go into a new season and we mark the cross on our heads. Saying in the end, this is about Jesus' way of being king and this is about Jesus' presence with us in the wilderness where it's difficult, where it's tough, where these realities meet. And maybe that's not a kind of spirituality that promises us some sort of palace royal experience right now. But it's a kind of spirituality that is closer to life and closer to those who suffer and closer to our own suffering and that has more room for compassion, has more room for grace, that has more room for yearning for a kind of transformation that comes on a donkey that is willing to go to the cross, that shares the bread to the hungry as Jesus did but does not transform the stones into bread to feed yourself as Jesus refused to do when tempted in the desert. So today is not about saying this is how we wave Jesus as king and do it right. 
but it's about coming with honesty to the king. and Recognizing that we project our expectations, our needs, and some of those are genuine. Being without food makes us hungry. Being without rights makes us indignant. And these things we bring because we need them to change. We want them to change. But we want them to change for ourselves and we want them to change for the others. So we submit our agendas to Christ and believe, as we say every Sunday, that this God that is with us is a God of grace, is a God of love, is a God of mercy, and is a God that can create that kind of kingdom among us. We're always trying to do this. And it takes, it takes courage, it takes grace, and it takes hope to be willing to wave our branches at Jesus, our palms, and let them be burned and let them mark ourselves again as we go into new seasons and do it again and again. And today we're going to do it. We're going to do it in a very simple way that the kids have prepared a song that they will sing with us and palms that we will wave and we'll sing. And we'll sing about hope and life and joy of life and faith that God gives to us down here is the expression in, uh, that they say in Norwegian. Yeah. And I think about the expression of the psalmists and uh, the writers in the scriptures who talk about the land of the living. Give us joy in the land of the living. Give us hope in the land of the living. Give us courage. And as we do that, my invitation is what is it What is the hurt that we need to be healed, but we don't want to see transformed into hate? Right? What is the pain that we need transformed, but that we don't want to see transformed into anger? What is the hunger and the thirst that we need to be quenched, but that we do not want to see transformed into greed? What are the injustices that we yearn to see changed but that will not be shaped into new forms of injustice that just center it again around us instead of around someone else? And if we can do that, I think we can wave the palm branches (laughs) and we can burn them again and we can wave them again and we can keep on doing that. Because then we recognize that the one on the donkey is not our kind of king, but he is our king. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face.
towards each and every one of you, into the reality of your lives, into the wildernesses that you go through, into the days of your joy and the days of your sorrow, that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully.